Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by Andrew Hunt, who is coordinator of Reading International and a research fellow at Kingston University. Tim Dixon, who is a writer, curator and researcher based in London. And Andrew J. Stook, who is a freelance artist and writer also based in London. Andrew Stook discusses the recent Shanghai Biennale, uh, Why Not Ask Again, Arguments, Counter-Arguments and Stories, co-curated by the Rex Media Collective. Andrew Hunt uh, looks at the history of the independent curator and the notion of gonzo as a strategy. Uh, but first, we'll start with Tim Dixon and his current feature on accelerationism. Uh, Tim, you bring together numerous artists that seem to tap into this uh, growing area of research and debate. Um, I wondered if you could briefly sort of outline by staking out some of the basic or some of the features that define the term and perhaps we can sort of build on that as we sort of go along. Sure, thanks. Um, I think what I was actually quite interested in with this article was looking at some apparently um, opposing strategies. So artists and curators who've looked at uh, slowing things down and then looking at some other practices which take the opposite approach and almost actually try and slightly collapse what those distinctions might be. So um, I think with the accelerationist strand in the article, the artists that I was really interested in, um, primarily with Plastic Fantastic, okay. um, performance group based in London, and um, Suzanne Trister, whose um, exhibition HFT, The Gardener, recently tapped into some really relevant themes around high-frequency trading and advanced capitalism. Yeah, there was Anna Le Judas just recently as well. Yes, and yeah. And Liverpool Biennale as well. Exactly, yeah. 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 So I saw it up in Liverpool um, as part of the um, Biennial there. But I think um, in terms of the theoretical references, um, I was quite interested in plotting out a little bit of the history of accelerationist thought. Mm. But the, the key reference for me was the recent book by um, Alex Williams and Nick Cernichak, yeah. um, Inventing the Future. Um, and I think, yeah, yeah, I suppose that's kind of the, the, the rough Yeah, and in terms point. of where you sort of outline that, I think those two writers, Cernichak and Williams, they seem to be more on the... It seems to me that there's a sort of split in accelerationism between, as you say, the sort of left and the right wing agendas, and they seem to sort of fall more into the sort of left wing yeah. point. Is that is that fair to say yeah ab absolutely i think um yeah i think with with accelerationism it's an interesting area i mean the as i mentioned in the article the the term accelerationism was coined by ben noise i think in 2010 um but there's kind of a prehistory that's been written for it um retroactively so i think the really key reference for that is the um accelerate the accelerationist reader which was published by urbanomic in 2014 yeah. and what they did there was they tried to kind of plot back um, plot back all the way back to Marx, actually, um, and write this prehistory. Um, one of the key references for a lot of the sort of contemporary writers um, would be the CCRU, um, the group loosely associated with Warwick University in the 90s. Oh, and yes, yes. You talk about those uh, Nick Land and Sadie Plant. Yeah, yes. absolutely, yeah. And, they, and I think the key reference points for them and for everything that's come after were, were kind of Jean-Francois Lietard, and uh, Deleuze and Guattari's anti Oedipus. Um, so there's the section that I quote in um, in the essay from anti Oedipus, where uh, Deleuze and Guattari are kind of looking at, you know, well, what is the revolutionary path? You know, would it be to, you know, to try and slow things down, or, or you know, actually, is it to accelerate the process? And I think that was an interesting, it's an interesting reference point um, historically, because I think they were really trying to deal with that kind of post '68 situation in France, where you know the the revolution that was supposed to come came mm. and and went and didn't 
didn't happen. So I think there was a real kind of, you know, on the on the the kind of radical left people looking at themselves and thinking, well, you know, what 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 do we do? You know, how do we actually uh, bring about change in the world? And I think it's interesting the way that the CCRU picked up on that and, and developed it. I mean, they weren't calling what they were doing accelerationism, um, but it's definitely a really key point in, in that, that history of that thought. Um, I think it's interesting to sort of trace that line back in terms of the left and the right, because I think with, I guess, the key thinker for the what we'd call right accelerationism today is Nick Land. Um, the work he was doing in the 90s probably doesn't so easily fall into a, a kind of a right you know right accelerationist um agenda it's um i think i think there was a certain antipathy towards elements within the left then but um i think his writing is certainly more yeah definitely moved to the right much more uh, yeah i mean my memory because we spoke briefly earlier but uh the sort of the thirst for annihilation which is the only book that i've read of his which i think probably back in 2000 when i was an undergraduate uh but i mean uh, largely that sort of picked up the sort of georges bataille route of sort of uh you know entropy collapse um sort of and that sort of idea of physical kind of almost emptying out as mm. opposed to a kind of i don't know something that situates itself more as sort of politically aligned yeah, well, I think that's that's Nick, Nick Land's an interesting figure. I mean, that's um, the only book he properly wrote and published, um, and he, you know, he he was kind of an academic outsider, really. Um, and the work that was done with the CCRU, um, it was all most of it was collectively authored. So there was a group of people. I think Mark Fisher was one of the key mm. contributors to that. Sadie Plant early on, um, and Nick, and then a loose group of other people associated with them. Um, but then. Nick's later writings, they were all published in zines, published online, um, they sort of, you know, distributed through various different channels, and they, they were gathered together by um, Robin McKay and Ray Brassier in collected writings, uh, Fang Numina, which I think was published in 2012 or thereabouts. Um, <clears throat> and I think with that, um, I think, with, well, with the work they were doing with the CCRU, there's always this you know, intri- you know, intrigue around who wrote what and and how was it written? But it was it was mainly gathered on the on the website, which is still online now. And it's quite, I mean, it's a fascinating body of work. It's very, you know, the small text sort of interspersed across across the website, um, and they're quite they're written in a very um, uh, almost like a fictional register. So there's there's different fictional personae that crop up in different situations, and they, you know, they explore some. I mean, I think with with land, he always wanted to explore ideas to the extreme, and I think that was, you know, with his book with Bataille, it was, you know, let's take this seriously and see where it it takes you in the end. And I think with his interest in accelerationism um, or accelerationist thought, that was very much his interest. You know, let's take Deleuze Guattari seriously, and where does that lead? And you know, how do you um, pursue that kind of philosophy in in reality? And I think it took him to some dark and strange places um yeah. and i think i know people see quite a divide in his writing between what he was doing in the 90s i mean the ccru disbanded um nick disappeared for a period and reemerged. i think he's now in shanghai okay. um and he um you know his recent writing is he, he he has numerous different blogs numerous different outputs he has numerous different twitter feeds and they seem to explore different tangents but there's specific parts of his current work which do i mean he has been accused of um of, of being a racist um but it's very hard to pin down 
you know, what he's actually doing, what he really means, what he's actually saying. I mean, he's a very, very intelligent, you know, dense writer. Um, but he's definitely, there, there are ideas that are, you know, quite unpalatable in some of his recent work. Mm. And I think that the, in terms of his accelerationist project, as I refer to in the article, I think what he's interested in is a kind of um, almost uh, apocalyptic vision where, you know, um, you know, as the, the quote says, you know, where capital, you know, you know, the human becomes a drag on capital. And mm. um, almost that, you know, that, I think, you know, philosophically, he's interested in these kind of artificial, impersonal forces that are possibly working through us. I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in in a sense, then, using that sort of uh, that sort of scaffolding of his thought in a way, you kind of approach numerous exhibitions and artworks. So you, t- you talk about the Holden Gallery show mm. um, um, from Slow to Stop um, and the numerous works that were on show there, David Clairbout and Andrea Pacci. Um, and Hannah Starkey. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how perhaps those works are not necessarily illustrative, but somehow go forward in developing some of those lines of thought? Well, yeah, I was actually interested in those as kind of a counter to this. And I think that the the more important reference in terms of the way I was thinking about those works would be the left accelerationists. So Williams and Cernicek. And one thing that they talk about is um, folk politics. So the idea of um, a kind of le- <coughs> excuse me left-wing politics that tries to almost withdraw from the world or, you know, drop out and, and, and not participate. And, yeah, it was actually the Holden Gallery show that was the kind of uh, thing that fell into place for this, the idea for this article when, when I received the press release, release for that. Because I'd been thinking about these practices um, that tried to speed things up or tried to, you know, explore those kind of extreme ends of things. And then th- that seemed to be doing the opposite. Um, and I was interested in whether or not that fell into a folk politics or whether it actually retains a kind of critical edge of its own as well. Mm. So I wanted to to almost offer that as a counter strategy and to try and explore how the two things might meet and whether they're necessarily contradictory. And I think with specifically the works I picked up on from the Holden Gallery show, the David Clairbout and the Adrian Patchy, I think they were really important in situating um, how the macro-political affects our experience of time and using a kind of a slowness not to not to recoil but to um give pause and kind of reveal the complexity of a situation um so yeah i think that was where my interest in those mm. came from yeah i mean there's one quote uh here is you know where you talk about slowness must remain critical and avoid falling into therapeutics it simply give the viewer pause in order to return refreshed to the marketplace and i can see a sort of uh you know where you where you're trying to situate that idea as you know so we're not just uh you know basically calming ourselves down to mm. you know enter back into this sort of the chain of mechanisms that then you know continue the, the accelerationist discourse in some ways mm. um it made me think of lee lozano but uh, you, you don't talk about her work but it made me think of that sort of strategy of where she kind of pulled back and sort of mm. you know sort of abstained or pulled away from being in the art world and stopped being instrumentalized to some extent but uh, you sort of situate that in more current works such as plastique fantastique mm. and uh, even rachel mclean in a way do you want to talk a little bit about those references as well yeah so i think um well just on the kind of withdrawal you yeah. know, i hadn't thought about lila zama yeah. that's actually a really interesting example of that i think the thing i had in mind slightly there was marina abramovich's show at the serpentine um and that kind of ad- adoption of um sort of certain you know forms of meditation or um technology <clears throat> technology of the self that um have potentially a kind of transformatory potential but had felt drained of that in a certain way mm. um but i think um yeah quite counter to that is an experience of a plastic fantastic performance which um 
you know they're they're completely immersive to the point of being overwhelming there's m much more in there than you can um hope to take in there's mm. this um you know they, it's all the media all on at the same time um and i think they are so also directly making reference to some of these um some of these theories that i'm interested in as well so you know accelerationism um the kind of very advanced um sort of technologies of you know late capitalism um you know they they're quite explicitly trying to tackle that um and i think there's something about seeing that kind of work where everything is is thrown into this um overwhelming mix um where things are kind of pushed to the extreme but somehow some of that sticks or something um something kind of latches on and you and you're left with sort of ideas or quite oblique um references that you might choose mm. to to explore yeah, later. So to me those quirks like both Rachel and Plastifantic, there's almost mm. like an abject quality. The fact that they're so dense and there's such a level of disgust as well. Mm. You know, I think within Plastic Fantastic the sort of you know, the slime or mm. the sort of mess and similarly in Rachel McLean the sort of the synthetic reproduction of something disgusting also lends itself again to a sort of abject territory i think um yeah i mean there's just something about that within both of the practices i think yeah that's true and i think the other thing that ties in i think with with suzanne trister's work as well is is the use of fictional registers as well which i think is really important in all of those they're they're all kind of creating um creating these worlds or kind of um you know extrapolating from what's happening and taking it to a slightly more extreme mm. point or a slightly exaggerated point or accentuated point. Um, and I think that's a really important strategy within all the practices as well. Yeah, and you talk a little bit as well about the universal basic income, which I thought was quite an interesting point to where you draw at a conclusion, really. Um, and this is a sort of alleviate... I mean, we talk, we've not really even talk, mm. talked about automation uh, mm. and the system of that and how that enables more time for the individual, etc. But also you talk about universal basic income. Do you want to talk a little bit about those strategies? Yeah, so I think what's really important about um, Williams and Cernicek's work is that I think one of the criticisms that's often leveled at accelerationism is well, you know what, what's your program almost or it can, it can get very abstract and theoretical and i think that what they try to do is bring it back down to the ground um and it relates to what i was saying about fictions as well because a really key part of their work is about sort of daring to imagine the future and to try to think about how we might bring about the kind of change that we want to um and i i kind of mention it quite at the end yeah. in a way because it i think the i was interested in the theoretical references but um i think what's important is there are you know, there, there are people who are trying to turn some of this into quite a positive political strategy. Mm. Um, they're definitely much more on the the left side. There's much more of a humanitarian kind of um, uh, quality rather than the kind of apocalyptic Landian line that we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think what they're really trying to address is the idea that technology, you know, advanced technology could be repurposed to quite positive ends and that technology is, you know, automation is happening and almost how you know how as a you know a global society are we going to cope with that um i mean it relates to you know what what trump's doing at the moment because you know the, there was a you know something um i came across where someone was saying you know what you know trump he's trying to create jobs for americans but is he going to create jobs for american workers or american robots mm. you know the idea if you bring manufacturing back home is that necessarily does that necessarily even result in a in a more equitable um outcome for the workers it's it's questionable nowadays um, and I think what they're trying to do is to say, um, you know, actually, we need to think about how we're going to structure society around automation and how we're going to use that to a positive end, you know, to be a, you know, a force for good and a force for, 
you know liberation rather than servitude and 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 poverty essentially which it could easily turn into yeah i mean we've talked a little bit about the sort of left right angles on this and uh i mean we talked a little bit beforehand whether we're going to discuss or not the ld50 gallery situation i think we should just lightly touch on it and the this gallery uh, over the weekend uh, was recourse to a series of uh, public exposures exposures by uh, Sophie Young. Uh, she publicized some of her uh, messages to the uh, gallery uh, curator director, Luca Diego, uh, which sort of uh, commented or revealed some of the, let's say, far right or left, you know, right wing agendas, perhaps. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I do reference the exhibition by John Russell that took place at LD50 last year in the piece. Um, and Nick Land um, was a speaker at a, a series of talks they did in the summer there. Um, I don't have a lot of personal experience with the gallery. Yeah. Um, I had been in touch with them. I, I guess I first became aware of them when Joey Holder and John Russell did their show there last year. Um, they did have a series of talks with um, various thinkers associated with what are known as neo-reaction or reactionary thought, including including land. Um, you know, people who self-proclaimed white nationalists um, mm. were involved in this in this series of talks, and I I was in touch with them just to kind of ask, you know, what their position was. But they were very um, so. Yeah, it was uh, Lucia, the director, was. Um, I mean, their line was very much we're, we're an open space for debate, and you know, this is an interesting, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon that's arisen online, and we're interested in. You know, you know, exploring that, but I think what's happened since then. They did this show. Um, I can't remember the name because it was just a serial number, yeah. um, which was reproducing a lot of sort of the alt right material that had been circulating online and linking that in with ideas around meme magic and kind of online cultures that have emerged around around the alt right. But it was very um, uh, ambiguous to say the least. The way the show was presented, I, I didn't see the show. I just I've seen lots of images of it. I had a lot of discussion with friends about. You know, are they advocating this or are they, um, you know, criticizing yeah. it? Are they just showing it? Um, but I think in light of um, the emails that have emerged recently, it's increasingly becoming clear that they're certainly sympathetic um, and they seem to be advocating, um, you know, uh, a right wing um, position, which yeah. is, um, I think, yeah, I think it was in, yeah, I think it was good that Sophie did what she did because I think a lot of artists, certainly people who'd worked with them weren't aware of, of the, the politics that the space was, um, or the people who run the space were uh, exploring, so I think it's it's interesting that it's coming to light in the way that it has. Oh no, I agree I think it's, these kind of things should be brought out uh, and should be discussed um, rather than just swept under the carpet. Well absolutely, yeah. and I think they are definitely taking a provocative position and if they are trying to even as they're saying, be an open platform for debate. They should come forward and say what what, what exactly. their side of the debate is. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear how yeah. they and respond and how they engage. With it, yeah, it's so. two different sides to that. Between being in an open space and actually advocating, mm. I think uh, in fact they uphold those viewpoints is something that they should be clear about. I yeah, mean, absolutely. I'm opposed to those viewpoints entirely. No, myself included, um, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think probably a lot of the artists they work with yeah. would also be the same. And certain artists I know have um, have come out and and said. As much, but um, I think if that's you know if they are genuinely trying to open up something to a debate, then they mm. should come and have that debate. Yes, I agree. Okay, well maybe we'll try and come back to uh, some of the issues raised in Tim's feature uh, later in the program. But uh, for now, let's draw close to that and open up with Andrew Hunt's feature on Gonzo curating. Um, your feature looks at the sort of the work of uh, Walter Hobbs 
and uh, various other curators. Um, do you want to sort of briefly outline uh, your interest in Walter Hobbs? Yes. Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to follow <laughs> Wake the from previous, the stupor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, kind of like subject, because, I mean, basically this is quite a straightforward article um, in many respects, in that it tries to look at... Um, We'll take Walter Hopps as a historical model as its starting point um, for the potential for curatorial practice um, in not just in the UK but in mainland Europe and uh, America as well in terms of what could happen in an unfortunate age of austerity where there's a certain stress reality involved with um, curating within uh, small to medium size institutions as well as a kind of strange temporality within uh, mainstream museums. So, I mean, it all started when I, I was just visiting um, the William Eggleston show at the National Portrait Gallery last autumn. And there, was, there were a couple of um, photographs that really uh, kind of stuck out. The first was of, of Walter Hopps, taken by William Eggleston, obviously, and, and there's a picture of Hopps, who's, uh, is, I mean, that basically he's pictured in a roadside phone booth uh, with slightly long hair, unkempt hair, a cowboy hat on, um, sunglasses, but he's got a very relaxed uh, air about him or posture about him. Um, the second work was a picture of Alex Chilton, the Memphis-based uh, musician, uh, in a state of reverie. Um, and in the caption it said Alex Chilton in a state of reverie basically that wasn't the title but the way that it, he was described um, and Alex Chilton uh, he was a legendary uh, musician who was in the box tops uh, age 16 then he formed the power pop band um, Big Star and ended up being this kind of massive influence on, on punk and early 80s music such as R.E.M. Uh, but uh, Eggleston and um, Eggleston and uh, Chilton were both from Memphis, and Eggleston knew uh, Chilton's family. But anyway, I mean, these two these two things are connected by this sense of slowness and reverie, uh, in a way. And this isn't slowness, as you previously talked about, as a kind of therapeutic antidote. It's a kind of strategic non-strategy, about um, which isn't an escape from accelerationism or or our accelerated digital technological. Um, time, it's more a way of working within it, or another way of working within it. But both, both of uh, both Chilton and Eggleston, I guess, relate to uh, a curatorial way of working through Eggleston's uh, photograph. And the reason for that is that I just decided I was, I've become I've in, I've been interested in this idea of the Gonzo for some time. And Eggleston was called uh, in his uh, in one of his obituaries the first Gonzo curator. Now Gonzo. Uh, was previously connected as a subject to journalism with Hunter S. Thompson. Now, Hunter S. Thompson was famous for um, uh, actually uh, kind of coincidentally covering a presidential um, kind of uh, uh, election, and one of his pieces was uh, referred to as pure gonzo journalism, and that was the first uh, way that any form of journalism with... Uh, referred to first instance of, of it being referred to as gonzo journalism, and the idea being, um, if you start to research what what that meant, is the, is the connection of of um, Thompson's viewpoint uh, point as trying to be as creative and as subjective and as inventive, almost 
a kind of false news, post-truth, fi uh, fictive element, um, as a claim which is very dangerous, as we know at the moment, of course. Um, but in an interesting way, um, his idea was to kind of debunk or to reveal the false objectivity uh, of of uh, serious journalism or the, the pious, almost moral uh, pomposity of it. So for me, it didn't take much of a jump to look at the idea of Gonzo curating as doing the same with a sort of misplaced professionalism in the art world with museum curators. And Hops really does uh, kind of act as that model. I mean, if you, if you look at the the history and the ways that he worked. He was forced out of various jobs through being unreliable. Um, famously, at one gallery, his staff had a pin badge which read, World Tops will be here in 20 minutes, um, because he was never there for any meetings. But on a more serious level, I mean, this photograph taken by Eggleston of him in a si uh, roadside phone booth shows him... Uh, in the late afternoon, reporting back on his travels, he took massively uh, long road trips with Eggleston. So for me, you know, which lasted weeks at a time, so for me, you know, rather than having a meeting in an artist's studio and then doing an exhibition with them, this idea of close, intimate research with an artist is a way of uh, doing things properly, slowly, professionally, um, in the right manner. Um, so I just go on with the with the article to try and uh, kind of rationalise, uh, uh, you know, a way of uh, describing why Waltops could be quite an interesting character mm. at this moment. Yeah, something about that, it's quite interesting, the notion of the sustained contact. Uh, and I guess that does sort of pick up on Tim's piece in a yeah. way, which is that sort of almost... Uh, yeah, the acceleration, but also the speed through which we often have to exchange or develop ideas or develop thoughts or even deadlines. I mean, the curatorial space, let's say, that uh, perhaps existed in Walter Hopps's time, I don't think perhaps is such a luxury that we have in terms of budgets, uh, times, uh, I mean, basic time that we have to make a show. Um, and I think we all see that. I think the idea of the big show now has drawn back a great deal. Um, and curators are actually pulled mm. into a space of doing something much quicker without the resources, without the assistance, without the, bu the big budget, without the resource to loans. Um, so all these things have changed a great deal since Hobbes' time. I just wondered, you know, I mean, I think it's a wonderful model that you're presenting, but is it actually still feasible? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an assumption in, in, uh, in your last remark that is actually untrue. Um, I mean, if you look at Harold Seaman, uh, who is from the same generation, um, he's very clear in a number of interviews that when he was um, at Kunsthalle Bern, he used to actually drive the van and collect all of the works. So, you know, at the moment, I think if you if you look at his... Th there are very few Kunsthalle directors who will do that at the moment, mm. you know. Um, so, in a way, we're, we're actually more lucky at the moment. There are far more institutions around... Uh, with more staff, um, and I think you know, since the early seventies, museums and institutions have have expanded and got bigger. I guess what, so I, I yes, I think it is Im important and it, and it is practical to say yeah. that that way of working is still possible. Um, I'm sort of saying yeah. more in the last sort of five or so years, really. Uh, you know, with cutbacks in yeah, uh, you know, arts council funding sure. budgets and so on, that there has been a noticeable. 
decrease and even you know we can see there's less shows per year now in uh, in institutions yeah. and so on yeah yeah well i think i mean uh i think what's interesting is i mean this is the wider debate about austerity which is why i think it's an important um an important model in that there are still this is this is the this is one of the issues in that you know obviously it's a, we have to go back to the the uh, financial crisis and the results of that have led to uh, you know obvious cuts well documented cuts in public funding that are starting to really filter down and uh, have a massive impact on the arts ecology in this country in terms of big in, in, uh, institutions and museums um, and I think that there are still ways of working because uh, there are what's become habitual over the last 20 years is are those ways of working in those institutions and museums. And what we really need to do is to try and break those habits and try and cr come up with creative ways of working within them, not, as, uh, not to try and resist... Um, I mean, obviously, it's good to try and resist public funding cuts, mm. um, but to actually try and be creative... Uh, in an overly affirmative way uh, and constructive and creative way within those institutions and also to start creating new institutions <laughs> and possible new ways of working yeah. with the limited resources of, that we've got. And I think Hobbes's model is, is pretty good. I mean, there are other number of numbers. There are numbers of, a number of other people that I mention. I mean... Uh, trip to New York. I mean, there's a lot of North American um, connections yeah. in there. So you know, I mean, obviously, America is is has got got virtually zero public money, and mm. uh, a lot of this is one of the reasons that this is interesting. Um, yeah, because as a counterpoint, you sort of offer the notion of zombie time. Do you want to talk about how yeah. that sort of situates itself within the Gonzo cura uh, curating concept that you sort of put, put together? Yeah, I try and deal with almost too much in yeah. this piece. Um, but the zombie, the zombie trope is quite old now. I mean, it came about about six years ago with zombie, zombie formalism, which was um, a, an attempt to criticise a certain trope of uh, abstract um, art in North America that seemed to be just going through the motions and emptied of content and a kind of reference... He's had historical reference points but were just emptied out. So it, it, the idea of zombie, like a reanimation mm. of the living dead. Yeah. Uh, and that zombie... Um, and I guess someone like Wade Guyton would be indicative of that practice, or is that? Am I right in thinking that? Or would you perhaps, think? yeah. I mean, you, I mean, the thing is, it's a catch-all term for yeah. a lot of stuff. So, but what's interesting it, for me, and what was more interesting for me, is the way that it's morphed in Hal Foster recently. Mm. So he's used the zombie prefix to attach to perform uh, to f performance, and it's interesting you mentioned Marina Abramovich because he he comes out against. This zombie performance and you know cites uh, Marina Abramovich's re-performance of a Joseph Boy's work, um, and the the reason why he is against it is that he sees that um, the museum uh, is kind of reanimating these performances, not for any any particular community like it was in the late 60s or 70s. It's actually not even for anyone to see. It's mainly for the media uh, attention of it. So in a way, it's a virtualized performance because it's meant to be seen through that one media image of it. And actually, if you do see it, it sort of uh, spectralizes or, or kind of fam virtually famishes your, you know, one's own view of it. It's al almost invisible. So this is kind of zombie. 
you know, know kind, kind of, of spectral. Because I'm interested. I mean, for me, it was kind of interesting because you know I think there is a sort of transformative element within that with the Marina Branch's retelling of the yeah. Joseph Boy's piece, partly because it's a woman. You know, it's simply yeah. and also she's Yugoslavian. There yeah. is a connection to the Soviet, yeah. uh, you know, fall of the Soviet Union and Soviet bloc, etc., etc., through Germany. You know, there are sort of interesting overlaps. I think that you know run through those the restaging of that work i mean i don't know maybe that, that's just my yeah sure i mean i think that's one of the positive aspects yeah. of her but the other side of it is that she's become such a celebrity mm. um it's a bit like speaking about ai way where you you know he's a, for me he's a pedestrian artist he's, but he's a, a, a very good you know kind of personality um so you know, I think I, I think of Ma uh, Marina Abramovich in the same way. Yeah. Her work was interesting, probably about twenty years ago, but mm. it hasn't been for the last ten years. That's for, yeah, that's that's for sure. You know, so I think that Foster's point and and the the point that I'm interested in is is um, is the kind of temporality that you get. So that's the important thing. Not very not specific practices. The idea of zombie temporality. So this idea of the living dead time that you get in institutions, and it it, tr it goes back to the you know old old arguments about the museum as a cemetery, um, and assuming that the artist runs space or the Kunsthaler or the smaller galleries, the smaller institutions are the more active. But ironically, what I found is, uh, and I think a lot of people have noticed this, is that. Um, the roles have been reversed. So you do get this idea of, like, you know, an attempt, I mean, performance in museums. It's meant to, it's a good educational tool. It's good for audiences or it's assumed to be. So the idea is that it's meant to activate audiences because you can see it happening. It's there. You can mm. see the transparency of the process of its making. However, you know, this virtual side of it diminishes that. And and I think Groys, Boris Groys and uh, uh how Foster both say that you know museums aren't a place for contemplation, i.e., looking at pictures anymore in a very uh, straightforward view. They're more about participation, where ironically the smaller spaces are. And I think what's interesting is, you know, in a highly accelerated uh, commercial environment like like New York and London, um, these small spaces and uh, you know small institutions are still the, the most important. But also, there's a, in terms of uh, trying to activate communities that performance art used to do, but also to look at unusual ways of looking at time. So for me, at, at the moment, painting is is one of the most interesting ideas of looking at time because. For me, you know, post-internet art, which is mostly t connected to film and video, has got a very mechanical score. Uh, and it's, uh, admittedly, it's a temporal process and a temporal medium. But painting, I mean, if you read recent work by David Joselet and Isabella Graw, and they talk about a networked painting, but they also talk about the labour time of painting, but also a more loose, uh, less mechanical time of the process of its making. Mm. and a psychological time. And I think that uh, outside, th what's interesting in painting at the moment and small institutions is that this is networked theoretical painting, but there's also an outsider element to it, which is untheorised and is being enacted in institutions, mm. small institutions like White Columns. Um, and the idea of that is that it's a small pinprick that could actually implode art historical uh, paradigms. Yeah, you mentioned Lynn Cook, who has done a great deal of work on this subject. In fact, I think she's doing a book on the outliers 
at the moment or a, a, a large show on that. Um, but you also mentioned the White Column show as well yeah. and the um, the writer Ben Maria, um, who I had a chance to... Well, I, I, he curated... I saw White Columns do another similar sort of show in a way at the Glasgow International Festival um, of uh, Derek Alexis Cord. Um, I th- and it sim- sim- sort of picks up some of the subjects you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, White Columns... Firstly, this, this White Columns programme, I mean, what's interesting is Math- Matthew Higgs, the director... Um, his focus is on um, people that have been forgotten by art history uh, and, you know, people who are important to him that seem to have a kind of quite interesting practice that's against the kind of fashion of the times. You know, what, for example, while people are looking in one direction, he'll look in the other and bring certain people back who are, who are revelatory in some way, mainly painters. So for an, an example of that is Den- Denzel Forrester. He and Peter Doy uh, curated a show at Tramps in London, but also in White Columns. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, Matthew's really interested in um, kind of artists with uh, with disabilities. So you'll get um, a community sense of, you know, radical practice in the heart of Chelsea, which, you know, the property prices are going crazy. So in a way, it's a quite interesting antidote or react reaction or response to the market i mean it's sort of one of the last men standing um in that area so you know i mean 30 years ago for example the space white columns couldn't it was seen as unrentable now uh, they're having to move out of that space you know well that's true and numerous other space i mean artist space uh they closed last year as well having had the soho loft uh for a long time one of the interesting things there is that (coughs) stefan kalmar who's just left um, I mean, that used to be a, an artist-run space, and I think he turned it into a Kunstaler model. So um, that was that's one less artist art, artist-run space, and that you know that's another symptom. Both white columns and uh, you know an artist space, are no, you know, will have uh, no space in Manhattan soon. But you know, rather than rather than kind of dwell on that, I mean, I think the outsider. That model is quite interesting because one of the shows that I also mention is uh, the exhibition that was on at the New Museum at the time, and I remember seeing that, and I, you know, I wasn't convinced by it. It was interesting because there were collectors, uh, alternative collectors of stuff. Yeah, this is the show, The Keeper, curated That's by right. uh, yeah. Gioni. Yeah, um, who curated the outsider um, Venice Biennale of two thousand and eleven as yeah. well. Um, I think, sorry, 13, 2013 it was. Um, but basically, the whole idea was that, um, you know, that, that you instead of having um, art collectors showing their collections or artists um, showing their work, you have, in a very basic way, um, people who collect other, who are interested in other other forms of knowledge but it's visual knowledge and it shows a different history. And so you, show, you were shown all these pr- alternative histories in this exhibition. And what was, what was more interesting was when I read um, Jerry Saltz's review of it in the New York magazine on the plane back. Mm-hmm. And he was just saying, look, this is big. You know, this is like amazing because for future art historians, this can, you know, as I've said, you know, act as a paradigm shift in the way that they see art history, rather than looking at the Duchampian model that we all mm. adhere to, the 20th century, you can absolutely shift it. Um, of course, you know, uh, there are 
I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is interviewing lots of people interested in painting and curating at the moment. So they're my two big interests. And I interviewed Robert Storr, and he said, well, of course, there are um, about this, this subject. And he said that, uh, you know, it's problematic because obviously there are always market, you know, kind of. It's just a new market, basically. Mm. It will open up a new market. But despite that, I think it's interesting for knowledge. And, and um, you know, you mentioned Lynn Cook. She's going to be curating a show on self-taught American art in um, an institution, a museum in Washington uh, this year. So that will be interesting as well. I mean, the dangers are you can look at this idea of, like, um, native people, which is uh, dangerous, you know, for obvious reasons. But I think the idea of... um, the idea of like a different way of working and a different temporal register other than this stress reality which Peter Sloterdijk talks about in his small tome Stress and Freedom when he re- re- connects to Rousseau. I mean, the way this all links up is that the, the, the Gonzo journalist, the Gonzo curator, William Eggleston's photographs, Alex Chilton in a state of reverie, Rousseau in a state of reverie. I'd all try and knit it, mm. knit it together to form a slower alternative viewpoint of slowing down. It doesn't mean that we're going to have less deadlines. It doesn't mean that we're not living in an a- accelerated digital environment. It just means that we should. One way of trying to resist is to try to do things uh, properly. If we yeah. can, you know, that's simply it, really. And try to look at alternative models of, of yeah, art. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I quite, in a way, this sort, of, this sort of aimless quality might reveal something that we, we didn't see before. Is that, would that be... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mentioned Rousseau. I mean, and this is coming from um, Peter Sloterdijk's Stress and Freedom. Mm. So he, he just basically talks about um, Rousseau as a dreamer on the boat by which he means he's referring to Rousseau's fifth walk. Basically, Rousseau was throw- a Swiss um, writer who was thrown out of Geneva because his writing was... Um, I mean, he was seen as the Antichrist for a little while, so he was sort of stoned out of his house, literally. Mm. Um, and for his own safety, the authorities hold him up on this, um, in this house on an island surrounded by a lake so no one could get to him. And his way of relaxing... or. He, it wasn't a way of relaxing it was just a way of being um he had no no none of his books he had no possessions and his fifth walk written in retrospect um speaks of this time where he had not care in the world and he went out onto the onto the lake in a boat and just lay down in a state of reverie for hours and he was really enjoying himself um and this idea of being radically useless mm. you know i mean walter hops was sort of radically yeah. useless in a quite humorous sort of way mm. um I mean, it connects to Oscar Wilde's idea yeah. of unemployability and uselessness mm. as a response to our over-usefulness. Good. OK, we may have time. We're running out of time here, so I'm going to have to slow quickly move on, I'm afraid, Andrew, uh, to another Andrew, um, who's, uh, well, was living in Shanghai for a period of time, um, but is covered for us this uh, the Biennale. Um, come over specially for just you, for us. just for this radio um, yes. So you went to see the Shanghai Biennale. Uh, let me get to the appropriate page. Uh, which is created by Rex Media Collective. Uh, why not ask again? Arguments, counter arguments, and stories. Uh, do you want to elucidate a little bit about the uh, the context? Yeah, well, it ties in really yeah. quite nicely, I think, with um, what you were saying about hops just now. That um, in a way, uh, it seems to me that the problem with being somebody like hops now is that the art world's become so very sort of professionalized, and the Shanghai Biennale 
is you know, at the sort of top of that pile, really. And I think the job that Rex Media Collective did on it was, you know, trying very much to sort of tick all the boxes and make um, a, the best sort of Asian Biennale that they possibly could do. Um, and they were looking to to somehow lead in Asia mm -hmm. by having the right number of Chinese artists, the right number of artists from other places, a good spread, not not exactly a Biennale that was looking to the West but was looking to some sort of future condition. Um, and in China as well, there was a big move to bolster up the art world in Shanghai. They were, they were supported... Um, in bringing together all the museums in the city. There was a sort of fat guidebook that you got that showed what was on at every other space in the town. Mm -hmm. uh, then at the back of that, it had got restaurants and clubs and hotels you ought to visit. Okay. Um, so it was, a, it was a sort of complete package, um, very nicely done. And initially, when it opened, it was also amazingly popular. You went there on the opening, and it was full of people. Okay. I mean, you thought, well, where did all these people come from? Because normally you go to museums in China... And there's no one there. You know, they're, they're very often startlingly empty. Um, but certainly it did capture people's imaginations. And it, But there are certain sort of people. Uh, there, are, there are sort of new art audience who is emerging in China. Um, and they're definitely looking for something that is clear, um, easy to read, and um, enjoyable. And uh, I think... Um, um, this exhibition certainly does that. There's a lot in it. There's a lot sort of going on. There's a lot of movement. It appeals to a great range of senses. When you get in there, there's some sort of strange smells to uh, enjoy. There's a big installation. You go inside in there. There's different tableau. There's flashing lights. There's sort of burnt wood. Uh, then you go, It's there's bee, a beehive in there, bees swarming around, a pool of sort of liquid, um, right. uh, black, oily sort of stuff. Then there's spiders crawling about, um, washing machines running, bits of performance. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, lots of things I didn't even mention in my <laughs> no. in my piece. Now I was going to talk more about because in a way you sort of pick up a kind of uh, inertia. I would say some of the works that you describe, you know, uh, Yin Yi's Ocean Wave, which is the electric fans turning on and off uh, in a cycle, cancelling out a breeze, or another work which uh, is someone sweeping. Um, yeah, this this spread stuff out and then sweep it up yeah, again. Yeah, this is sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think all of this activity doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. Mm. Um, um, but but is that the curator's idea to illustrate or kind of you know? Well, I think the curator's idea w was more to create something that was was very animated. And I think what I was trying to say in the article was that yeah, you, sure you do that, but you don't necessarily actually get anywhere with it. You keep going around in circles. You don't find um, answers. Um, and certainly at the opening of it, they gave a big speech and they said, you know, these are new questions. These artists are searching for solutions to our current problems. But then you look around the show and it's all rhetorical. You don't actually find any solutions. Um, and indeed, what you seem to find is a, a sort of constant elliptical movement looking back at problems that are in cannot be solved really they're, mm. they're, they're problems that what do we do about them but uh, let me be clear is that you're saying that's the intrinsic relationship of the work itself or the curatorial 
uh, formation of those words. Well, I think I think the curatorial formation um, is intending for there to be some solutions offered, but I'd like to know where they actually are in the mm -hmm. exhibition as a whole. Because the I Rex mean, they're, they're hinted yeah. at a lot, but yeah. they're not um, delivered, I would say. Because the Rex Media Collective, I mean, they're an art uh, trio, I think, based mm -hmm. in Delhi. Delhi, yes. Um, and at one point, uh, I know the exhibition had a question mark uh, next to it. That's uh, right. So they, why not ask again, question mark, and then they chose to delete that. Do you want to talk perhaps about well, I th why? Well, I think um, the idea of deleting the question mark is a... Um, was a major strategic uh, change to the title. Obviously, the the title initially evokes some sort of interrogation, mm. some some sort of real question. But then you take that away, and you're left with a set of a set of words that don't um, ever come to what the problem is and what the answers are likely to be. Uh, and I, I suppose. Uh, thinking about what people are yeah. talk, talking uh, about around the table tonight, uh, that seems to me one of the problems in this sort of post-capitalist situation we find ourselves in, that we don't really know any anymore. It seemed quite difficult to define whether we are left-leaning or right-leaning in terms of what do we do about capitalism, what do we do about um, ecological damage, what do we do about migration, all you know, sort of key difficult questions and it's a good idea that a big Biennale exhibition attempts to grapple with them um, and why not ask again would Im as a question would imply that you're going to get um, some new uh, insights into that but why not ask again when it isn't a question uh, implies that you're in a much more problematic sort of state. And I think um, that's why they took the question mark out, realising that they perhaps weren't going to get the answers that perhaps they'd hoped for when they started thinking about the exhibition. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I never really go to an exhibition hoping to find an answer, actually. Uh, I mean, it's always a surprise if... <laughs> I mean, I think for me, it's more about pointing in those directions. But, uh, uh, I mean, certainly looking at some of the works that you've mentioned on you mentioned in your review, uh, there is certainly a great deal of spectacular. I mean, that one work uh, which we illustrate in your text by Musen mm -hmm. and MSG, which is a very, I mean, strange, uh, you know, it's this incredibly large uh, terrain of sand and so on. Yeah, there's sort of huge yeah. um, installation. Yeah. It looks like a <coughs> lunar landscape. You go inside, you, you, you completely lose the sense of where you are. You seem to be in a much bigger mm -hmm. space inside it than you are outside. And you go through a set of different chambers, mm. um, which depict a, a pretty ap apocalyptic sort of scenario. Mm. Um, and that there's, there's voices in the walls of the exhibition talking about previous um, political problems, really. Um, and elsewhere in the exhibition... There seems to be similar sorts of things where there's problems kind of embedded in the very fabric of the building. You can you can yeah. hear them resonating in the walls. Well, this is the year of rather large exhibitions, actually. Mm -hmm. So from the Shanghai Biennale, we also have Documenta this year. We have Venice Biennale this year. Um, it seems kind of interesting. I wondered if anyone had any thoughts about uh, what these now seemingly very 
they seem almost outdated in a funny sort of way, these giant hulks of exhibitions and seem more and more remote perhaps to the conversations that we're having here. I mean, how do you think that maybe they situate themselves or do they still situate themselves at all in any kind of you know valid or urgent discourse? Well, I think they're very worried about whether they can situate themselves mm -hmm. in uh, an urgent discourse. Um, I think one of the things they were talking about in Shanghai before the Biennale, because they had the um, Biennale Association had a conference in Shanghai before, um, and they were very much talking about how if you wanted to address questions, particularly questions on a local level with a Biennale, there needed to be much more continuity between one edition of it and the next edition of it. Um, and that would seem to me quite a key thing, that often um, communities are sort of animated by the Biennale, but then the Biennale closes, people start preparing for the next one, and it's, it's all forgotten, and another curatorial group come in, they have a different idea, and that they want it to be better and they want it to be different. Mm. But um, it would be good if there could be more um, more of a bridge between one event and the next, I would have thought. Mm. Good. Uh, does anyone else have any thoughts on uh, the upcoming curatorial, um, well, the new shows coming up? Any, sh any thoughts, Andrew? Well, just, just thinking about the Biennale, I think it's also a way that you consume them because um, there's, there's such a consensus that seems to be especially with Venice, every time that, you know, every two years, it seems that everyone seems to have made their minds up mm. with, uh, on, as an opinion about a particular, uh, you know, edition of the show in the run-up to the official opening, you know, in the preview. And I actually like going to, ignoring what, trying to ignore what I've heard and going to see the, you know, the exhibitions afterwards. And trying to, you know, and, and again, it's another form of slowness, you know, the idea of mm. consuming stuff outside of that competitive thing to see everything before someone right. else has, you mm. know. It's the idea to try and see it in a slower time, really. Mm. And and it's interesting this year, I think, with Documentary in Venice, it's, you know, it's one of those um, years where you get quite a lot in one go. So it'd be nice to try and do that in a in a good pace. That's all I, I'm thinking. Yeah, really. well, it is a good example of... Uh, a huge amount of material to get through in the coming <laughs> yeah. weeks and months. Um, in which case, I just have to quickly flash uh, a piece of news from about Resonance FM. Uh, they are doing their annual fundraiser, uh, Saturday 11th to the 19th of February. Do look at their website uh, on how to donate to this much-needed and valid institution. Uh, that leads all me to do is to say a great deal of thank you, great deal of thank you to our guests this evening, Andrew Stook. Uh, Andrew Hunt and Tim Dixon, uh, a huge thank you to, for taking part this evening. Uh, I'm Chris McCormack, and this is the Art Monthly uh, Talk Show. Uh, all uh, subjects debated today uh, are available in this month's issue of the magazine. That's February. And that just leaves me to say thank you and good night. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>